Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Homage to the blessed, noble, and perfectly enlightened one. Homage to the blessed, noble, and perfectly enlightened one. Namo Saranto Suche Doe Hulahudi Sanyao San Patoshe. The unsurpassed, deep, profound, subtle, wonderful Dharma in a hundred thousand million eons is difficult to encounter. Now that I have come to receive and hold it within my sight and hearing, I vow to fathom the thus come one's true and actual meaning. Venerable Master, Dhamma friends, uh, good evening. Welcome to our Sutra Lecture. It's the 24th of September. Uh, the second day of the autumn is here, and we're in Berkeley, California, to talk about the Avatamsika Sutra. So uh, please do uh, find a seat. Welcome. Move forward. And uh, only one monk, so we need to fill in. There we go. And please take the seats down front, because there's going to be a full house tonight. Um, your sutra text, you're going to need one of these. And uh, we're going to chant the name of the sutra and the Buddhas and the Bodhisattvas that teach the sutra. So that's what we're going to do next. We have a Vietnamese translation happening simultaneously in the balcony. So if anyone would like to sit close and hear a Vietnamese translation, we have one.
Please turn to page 38, 38 and 39. Welcome to anybody who might be, uh, oh, uh, you got, uh, Anguilla, you got, yeah, yeah. Uh, we, uh, want to 38 and 39, and, uh, we have been working towards the, uh, the, uh, finishing the second ground in our text, and, and we will tonight finish. We're going to the end of the second ground, the last couple of verses. And also people who are joining us online, welcome, wherever you might be from. We, uh, that's one of the great joys of, of sutra lectures in the last couple of years is we've been able to add a, uh, an online dimension. Uh, for example, uh, tomorrow, uh, Monday morning that is, we uh, also create a, an online, uh, an assembly, a gathering that includes people who are joining us via internet. And uh, Monday morning we will have people from London. Catherine Lamb will be joining from London uh, Fedda will be joining from Roderick from uh, Eindhoven in Holland. Yoshu Ting will be joining us from Paris, France. And people will be joining us from Oakland and from far away, you know, LA, even Los Angeles. And so it's quite wonderful to be able to use internet tools um, to, to be able to bring the Dharma and, and people together in a brand new way. So one of the things that we do is we've been webcasting. We've been sending this Saturday night lecture out to people who are sitting at home with a computer, able to listen. And uh, I get, I regularly get these uh, emails and letters too, handwritten letters from people who say, uh, this is just way wonderful to be able to sit in my den, in my living room, in my cubicle, uh, and uh, hear Mahayana Sutra come to life. Uh, here's $500, keep it going. Ha <laughs> ha. Now that could be Panya, and I might be planting a seed by saying that, but I'm not, I'm not. Just, just giving it to you for reference sake. Some people uh, just uh, find that that is, is a wonderful concept to have sutras available. And also, if you are joining us via Ustream, you can chat open up that Ustream chat, and you can ask questions. And Phil uh, is here on, on duty uh, as our tech rep and question forwarder. So Phil will happily raise his hand and say, somebody online wants to know an answer to this question. And uh, tonight, by the way, we have a special, uh, a special um, Dharma, uh, Dharma advice you know, remember Dear Abby, when I was growing up, it was Dear Abby, and she was always there, and she could give you advice, and so tonight we have a Uncle Dharma has come, so, uh, he's right any questions that you got later on, uh, you can ask me, and I'll give you advice, I'm, I'm good at advice, I got lots of, uh, you know, I can tell you lots of stuff, so think of your questions later on, they call me Uncle Dharma, Dharma Shushul, yeah, well, wait, I, I can answer your questions, all right? Do you have any questions? No, not so many. Okay. Lots of answers, though. Okay, good. So that's coming up. Look forward to that. 
That's after the lecture. After the lecture. So anybody has any questions, Uncle Dharma will be happy to answer. So please, on page 38 and 39, um, turn to the second line, line number two. Uh, the Buddha's disciples dwelling here. Okay. The Buddha's disciple dwelling here acts as a wheel-turning king, universally teaching living beings to practice the ten good deeds, all of the good dharmas which he cultivates in practice are to seek the tenfold powers and then save the world. Okay, let's see. Yes. Okay, if we were to put it into to music, if we were to chant it the way, probably the way people did in the Buddhist time, it would be something like this. Uh, let's see here. talking about the sutras talking about a bodhisattva this is uh, um, 
that this Bodhisattva doesn't have a name. He's not like Manjushri or Samantabhadra or Urstor Bodhisattva. He's uh, a generic kind of a standard Bodhisattva. Someone who gets to the level of the, the second ground acts as a wheel-turning king. Um, what's, what's, what are we talking about? Um, in, in each of these ten grounds, and we're on number two, we're just finishing number two. We've gone, spent a long time going through each one. We'll, we'll get to number three tonight. It has a, an introduction part, and that's usually um, two pages. Then it has the special teachings for, for, this, for each ground. First ground, second ground, third ground. Then it has the conclusion, which is like a refrain, kind of like the, the chorus of a song. And that part repeats. First ground has it, second ground has it, third ground. So that's the same, but it changes just a little bit. Uh, it, it ups it every time a little higher. And here, uh, this is in the second ground, a bodhisattva who gets to the second ground becomes a wheel-turning king. What does that mean? That means that um, when this bodhisattva comes in a body, becomes, is reborn, they're reborn as a god. And their wheel-turning kings are gods. They're in the first, they're in the first realm of the desire heavens. For example, the Su Tianwang, the heaven, the gods in the heaven of the four, the four gods, those are wheel-turning gods. And they come in four different kinds. We, we talked about them in the part of the text that was the prose. This is the, the verse section. We're repeating it. So when we got to the prose, we talked in detail about the four kinds of wheel-turning gods. And that's a funny name, wheel-turners. It's like bicycles? That kind of wheels? You know, what, what's a wheel-turning king? Um, it's, if you think of a bicycle, you kind of have the idea um, in that these gods are able to turn a wheel, but it's like a Dharma wheel inside them. They're able to turn their own Dharma wheel. Now, what does that mean? That's even more strange, right? It means that they have um, certain kinds of abilities in meditation. And when they turn that wheel, uh, things, it's as if, well, people, people have always talked about speaking Dharma as turning a wheel. Um, the Dharma wheel, the Dharma wheel turns. And so this is, uh, this is like that. When you get to that level of meditation, you have special abilities in as being a god. And sure enough, these uh, wheel-turning kings, if somebody wants to go into this for your MA thesis, if you want to write a paper for your comparative religion class, or if you're looking for a dissertation thesis for your doctorate, let me recommend that you write about the, the four heavenly kings. Just pick one. Just pick one aspect of one of them, because there's so much. If you go through the sutras, our, our big hundred volumes there, and you had a, 
a digital comb that could comb through and pull out all the information about the wheel-turning kings, you would have enough for, for many, many pages of, of your thesis. In other words, the Buddha talked about them a lot. And one way to think about that is, in a time when people are um, simpler in mind, kinder in heart, less complicated, the distance between gods and humans seems to shrink. Interesting? In times like ours, when people are really complicated, when we're not simple or innocent, we're very like sophisticated and uh, confused, and there's lots of... Um, when the world is full of uh, turbidity, you know, things that are just... When we learn to put up with so much pain and suffering and injustice and wrong things, it's not that the gods go away, it's that that boundary where people and gods interact gets uh, clouded. It's like a, a really good camera lens that you rub your thumbs over so the camera doesn't, sh- you know, the lens is smudged. That's what it's like now. So in the sutras, how interesting, the line between that, that place, you could say the interface between the realm of devas, the, the dharma realm of devas, and the dharma realm of people is not, not so far away. It's like a really good camera lens. It's very clear. And so if you want to talk to the gods, if you want to respond to the gods, you, you kind of have access to that information a lot. So in the Buddha Sutras, he talks about the gods a lot. Here's a bodhisattva who is a god, he's a wheel-turning king, and yet his work is with people. Okay? That, that's, if you can see how this is talking about the interaction between another entirely realm of, of existence, the gods realm. Um, okay. When you pick up the Bible, does anybody have a chance to read the Bible on a daily basis? Maybe you don't. If you're a student, maybe you, you do. You read the Bible as literature. If you have... Uh, Somebody in your family who's a Christian, maybe they are, you know, they put the Bible in your hands and suggest that you should read it more, you know. Uh, If you have neighbors or in your workplace, people might have the Bible. The Bible is uh, one, one way to look at it that's very interesting is to look at the Bible as a history book. It's a history of the Israelites, not the Israelis, two different things. Israel is the current political state. Israelites are the tribe of people who, who the Old Testament is talking about. And it's clear that at that time, when the Bible was recorded, the line between gods and humans was very thin. That there was daily interaction between gods and humans, and often painful. There's lots of violence in that particular story. And that's that's interesting. If you want to compare, here's another topic. If you want to write one, um, would be the uh, the amount of um, acts of violence in scripture. When you get to the Buddha Sutras, none. Is that interesting? There, if you just look at in a Buddha Sutra, how many times do you hear about bloodshed? 
And how many times do you hear about revenge? Yeah. How many times do you hear about justice? Meaning, you had it coming, so we burned your village. Doesn't happen. How many times do you hear about so-and-so slew so-and-so? Doesn't happen. Not to say down on anybody, just to say from that lens. Take a look. You know, Buddhist sutras tell lots of stories, real people doing real things, but it always brings it beyond conflict that always comes from me and mine, right and wrong. So, when you go to stories of gods, surprisingly enough, you discover you can be a god in heaven and still shed blood. The life of a god is not free of war. There are soldiers in the heavens. There are armies in the heavens. Can you imagine being reborn as a god and getting drafted? (laughs) Going off to fight? You know, serving chakra. Back you are into the, the realm of fighting for for my God, you know. So, true, that's, that's how it goes. Now, it's not exactly accurate to say there's no conflict in Buddha Sutras. I have told a story about when the Asuras come. Right in our Avatamsaka Sutra, when we get to the chapter called Shensho, the worthy leader chapter, um, we'll find out about uh, when the, the, uh, the gods and the Asuras go to war. And the wheel-turning sage kings are... Sometimes the, the generals are the ones who lead the other troops out. So, so you find out a lot about these gods in, uh, in the Avatamsaka Sutra. And one of the things that these gods do is they subdue the demons. Their job is to take charge of different groups of demons and ghosts. So... The, I, and I don't have my table. There's a, there's a uh, table, which mm, if I had my dictionary, I could check it out for you. Each of the four wheel-turning kings subdues a different kind of demon, and they're specific. So the wheel-turning, the, the gold wheel-turning king subdues the yakshas, and the silver wheel-turning king subdues the, uh, the uh, garudas. Uh, no, not the garudas, the... Um, um, no, no, no. Uh, who are the other demons? They subdue the um, Rakshashas. And another one subdues the, uh, the, the Kumbanda demons and so and so. Sometimes, if you have been to old temples in China, Vietnam, Taiwan, um, even sometimes in, this, in, in the Western Hemisphere, if it's an old temple... When you go into the Si Tian Wang Dian, the Hall of the Four Kings, okay, that's the um, the first one that you go in. You know, you park your car, you get off your bus, and you go through the big gate. And the first hall that you go in, you find these four characters, you know, like that. They're they're standing there, and they're usually like really big. Um, if you look under their feet, usually you look at their face, and that's enough, you know. You look away. But if you look under their feet often, you'll see that they're stomping on somebody. Well, this is one of the wheel-turning kings and they're stomping on one of the realms of demons. So somebody could say, huh, see, there's violence. There is violence in sutras, right? Conflict. 
Well, yeah, but that's, you're only seeing one snapshot. What happens is the demons, after they get their anger and bad temper subdued, is they usually turn around and become Dharma protectors. So, um, that reminds me of a story. We have, we have, we're on line one. Uh, going too slowly here. Uh, I have a story. And the story goes uh, in Los Angeles, bowing, three steps, one bow, through a place called Lincoln Heights. Lincoln Heights, at the time, was close to, uh, close to Watts. And we uh, had been warned not to go through Lincoln Heights um, any time past midday, because... If we went through in the afternoon and school let out, we were going to be right in the middle of lots of young people, teenagers and gangs, because this is gangland. So we said, oh, okay. So we started out right after lunch, going right past Lincoln Heights, Lincoln High School. And unfortunately, there was road construction. We had to take a detour. So they put us through another neighborhood. And when we came around after the detour, it was 3.30 p.m. right in front of the high school. Bring! School's out and we're surrounded by these gangs. Oh, Lord. And so we, uh, we went through, kept bowing. And uh, I'll, I'll save that part of the story. But we kept bowing and, and got through without any trouble. And we um, wound up on uh, three blocks down in a, uh, uh, an intersection, and this was like where Lincoln Heights started to meet Chinatown. And so the end of the day, and we're finishing up, and we always did a transference in the last bow, so we're finishing the bowing, we're standing there, and when I come up from the last bow, I realize that we're surrounded by these big, ugly dudes. And they're like five guys around us. And one's right in front. And then the other two are like on both sides are kind of flanking. This guy is standing there and he's, he's Chinese. And he's like, to say he's big, he's just like super big. He's like really big. And he's got, you know, gold chains, gold rings, gold. They did, nobody pierced their ears that man. But he's like, he's like totally gold and... He's, he's got this face, you know, like that. And he's just all... And my first thought was, geez, it looks like a heavenly king, only the part that's under the foot, you know, he looks like <laughs> the demon underneath. And this guy's standing there, looking at us. And so, uh, you know, and we, this is so early. This was like three weeks into the pilgrimage. We were just beginning. We didn't have our letter that explained everything. And so Marty... Marty has been told that he can't use any martial arts. He can't defend me at all. As soon as he throws the first punch or kick, he's no longer Shurfu's disciple. So, you know, what are you going to do? And so this guy is looking at us. And he goes, We've been watching you guys. He said, Long as you're in our turf, you're all right, you're safe. <laughs> He says, <laughs> you know. So, 
very much the thought that these, you know, the, the bodhisattvas as wheel-turning kings subdue somehow these, the, the baddies who turn around to become dharma protectors. And so we, and sure enough, these guys came out every day just, you all right? You need anything? All right, just call you, raise a finger. That's all you have to do, just raise a finger. We'll be right there. So, okay, okay. So, uh, that's what these, these wheel-turning kings do. So the bodhisattva here is a wheel-turning king. In fact, his heart is a bodhisattva. But his body, he's a god. So the gods are here to, uh, as a bodhisattva, in, in his vows and his practice, to teach living beings. Sure enough, the Buddha sutras are full of stories where the gods test People and then if you pass the test, wow, you're, you're, uh, you pass. You're you you get uh, to progress. You go forward. Um, you know our story, our story of Sunita. You know the song. We have the Sunita song. We've got the song book. We'll go there later. Sunita gets tested by the gods. Indra and Shaka, Indra and Brahma come to test him and say, Ah, you are a sage among people. You are a thoroughbred of humans, he said. So, even in the songs, we have a case of human and God interaction. Now, what about now? Do we see gods now? Well, I don't know. I don't know. Um, My guess is they don't go very far away, but in what's called the Dharma-ending age, I think the gods probably um, get discouraged because they see less human behavior worthy of support. It's just harder now to, to follow the good, to be true and simple. It's harder. The temptations are so much more uh, prevalent. Um, Shervu said, this is interesting to think about, Shervu said that after 1949 in China, not only Sherpa, but there are Taoist teachers who said the same thing. After 1949 in China, the Bodhisattvas who were on this Si Da Ming Shan left. Communism is not compatible with the, uh, the spiritual energy of sacred mountains. So they moved. And the Taoists said, there's a Taoist writer who talks about after the incredible bloodshed of the transition in China from the Republic to Communism, all of the magical animals that are out there protecting mountains went underground. They went away. So, what about that? I don't know. I mean, I, that's way beyond my realm, but you contemplate that. If you have a, a Wu Shenlun kind of a... An, official atheism where there is no there is no uh, lighting of incense there is no bowing there's no people are not allowed to ask for interaction with the devas you know what happens to the devas if and you think are they really there all this time? yeah no what happens when we light a stick of incense what do we really think we're doing? In, in a real way, we're asking spiritual beings 
to draw near. And of course, with ordinary vision, I don't see that. But I don't have to move my mind very far to think, we're hoping, we're hoping that God's dragons, the Eightfold Division, how much the more Buddhas and Bodhisattvas would accept our invitation to say, please come, bless our, our uh, assembly. You know, please come. So there's an interaction between people and the spiritual realm. I mean, what, what do you all think you're doing when you light a stick of incense? Who knows? Yeah. And that's why in your, your altar at home, um, it's nice to make sure that it's in a clean place, just in a, a tidy place. You know, don't put your magazines up on the altar next to the Buddha. Don't put your Starbucks cup, you know, on the altar. It's a little brown ring, you know. You want to keep that place special. So, and it can be really small, but it's a special place. Do you know the nice thing about Japanese architecture, traditional Japanese architecture, tokonoma? Do you all know about the tokonoma? That was one of the neatest things, was that... In, if you have a four tatami room, the smallest Japanese room, if that's the, where you live, there will be a niche in the wall where there's just a flower or a scroll or a, even like a, you know, we don't, these orchids don't have the, the you know, one leaf, beautiful Japanese flower. That's where... You put one pretty thing in the tokonoma. Why? That's the spirit place. So it doesn't have to be an altar with Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and wooden fish and candles and things. It can be just that space where it's pure. That's where your spirit goes. And you hope that the gods will come there. And to take that, you know, I mean... If you're a student in a dormitory, prepare your place for the spirits to come. Make a little corner, one spot, a little higher. You know. So, what do you? Th- the point of this is to say, what do you think when you light a stick of incense? What are you doing? What I'm doing is I'm face to face with, usually with an image. These Buddhas are fine, Bodhisattvas are fine, or it can be a you know, an image like this, two-dimensional. And I'm saying, I would like to offer up this pure thing, meaning, in this case, fragrance. It's designed only for the smell, you know, nice stick of incense. It can be a flower, it can be food, it can be water, it can be any kind of, of harmless, nothing died, right? It's not a duck, it's not a fish. Uh, it's pure. I'm offering this up with the wish that the image to whom I'm offering and spiritual beings in realms in all ten directions infinitely touching the limits of space and the Dharma realm, may they all accept this offering. And often I s- if, if it's something, you know, as a monk, it's nothing that comes from me. It's something that lay people have made available to me. 
incense, for example. Two boxes of incense came from Taiwan today. Uh, some tea came from England today in a teacup, you know. So may all of these wholesome, pure offerings, may the, the merit of the beings who gave these connect. May the spirits, the devas, compassionately accept this generosity and bring a blessing to those who were kind enough to, to offer it. So that's what I'm thinking. And you know, uh, and then you put it in the incense, put it in the in the censer, put it on the altar. That's it. You just you don't count to see did they come? They're late. You know, you're not thinking like that. You're not attached to the result. Just you're doing the offering, hopefully with a single mind, ishin, you know, sincerely. And by doing that, you're it brightens up my day. That's one moment that I had in contact with a realm really different from the realm of Republicans, Democrats, and Tea Party, and Independents, and Progressives, and Conservatives. Ugly stuff. This is something pure. You know. So, in other words, as a human, I'm hoping for interaction with the spiritual realm when I offer something. May these wheel-turning kings, who are actually bodhisattvas, come and accept it. Now, do they come or not? That's their business. I'm not going to check, you know. I'm not going to report them. Uh, we, we missed your... Uh, the, the dragons didn't arrive today? Where were they? You know. Dragon patrol. Uh, they were there, but you couldn't see them. Oh, that's more likely, right? They were everywhere, but I couldn't see it. Um, so you don't worry that they come or not. You just do your part. And now what I'm describing is the external, right? the, the physical manifestation. Suppose you're in a situation where you have not even a tokonoma, not even a niche for your flower, for your incense stick. What if you're traveling? You're moving from plane to train to bus to car to foot. You're on foot. Well, clearly, offer it in your heart. Make your heart a place where the devas are welcome. Make room in your heart for pure beings to come and live. What kind of a place is that? Well, if that place is fully depressed, always thinking nasty things about yourself can't bring a god or a deva there. Right? It's not, it's not clean. So clean up your heart and make it a place where devas are welcome. Make it a place where spirits could come and feel clean. Um, I remember this... Uh, where was that? That might have been a... Um, I guess that was a translation. It doesn't sound like a Buddhist... I, I ran into this lovely English translation that I can't remember where I saw. But it went like this. It said, Only where all is pure will spirits abide. Only where all is pure will spirits abide. So if it's not pure, spirits might come to accept your offering. They won't stay because it needs to be cleaned up. Clean it up. 
then they stay. Right? So, I don't know, I can't tell you where that came from, but only where all is pure will spirits abide. Like my heart, right? My mind. If my mind is still full of profanity, if I still use four-letter words a lot, hmm, spirits won't be there long. They'll come and go. If I get rid of profanity and just really use something other than four-letter word, uh, then they have a better chance of keeping the spirits. They'll stay. And then the things you say have more light, more blessings to them. If I'm constantly nagging my spouse, constantly, constantly, the husband nags the wife, gives her that look, or doesn't talk, gives her the shoulder, you know. Or if the wife always, you know, uses that tone, then you think, can I get a, will I bring a God to my heart? Will they stay? Will the Spirit stay? Will the Dharma protectors stay? Chances are not. Change that. Open and really look. Open your eyes. Look at your spouse. Listen to them. And just spend some time. Just don't go away. Don't, don't shut down. Amazing how that same conversation becomes a place where you feel like there's energy. There's some light and blessing. Could it be that the gods are there because you opened, you cleaned up that space? Maybe. Maybe. So, think of your mind as the tokonoma. Your mind is the place where the, you're making an offering. So, the, Bodhi, the Buddha's disciple dwelling here acts as a wheel-turning king. He will receive those, those offerings and come and stay. Universally teaching living beings to practice the ten goods. What does the wheel-turning king there in the heavens do? He is teaching the Dharma. And I mentioned last week that in our Shen Shou chapter, in the Worthy Leader chapter, Chakra, who is the king in the heaven of the 33, has a Dharma hall. You know, we talk about Indra's net, the, the net that adorns the palace of Chakra. That's it. That's the place. It's in the second heaven up. The heaven we were talking about was the wheel-turning king's heaven. Well, in the sutra talks about the, the 33, the heaven of the 33 gods, called the Triostrimsha, which means 33 gods. In that heaven, there is a shan jian tang, the hall of beautiful views, wholesome views, right views, beautiful landscape up there, the vistas, nice vista, shan jian, nice vista. The, um, in that place, there's a Buddha hall, there's a Dharma hall, where uh, chakras always speak in the Dharma. Has anybody ever heard about what language the devas use? Hmm? English, of course. What kind of an accent do they have? Probably British, right? Gods probably speak with a British accent. Right? Very posh. Right? Right. Eton, Etonian. Oxford accent. Yes, Rala, yes. Can you imagine? And you get up there and you're ready to hear Chakra speak the Dharma and he goes, Well, nice to see everybody today. I'd like y'all to take your seats and get ready. Quiet down back there in the corner. Uh, we're, we're going to speak the Dharma. 
He speaks with a Texas accent. Oh, no. So, yeah, or God speaks with a Brooklyn accent. So sit down already. I've been waiting for you. Come on. No. What kind of language does the God speak? What, Jason, what do you You had a... Sanskrit. Oh, that's interesting. Devanagari. The, the writing of the gods. <laughs> you get up there and he says, Come, come, come. Please sit, please sit. <laughs> Very good. Why not? Probably there's a Deva language. That Devanagari, right? We know what Devanagari is? Deva. God's Nagari, writing. The script Sanskrit is actually spoken. When they write it, they write it with a special script. You know, it's the Indian ABC's way of writing. And it's not, it's not Sanskrit, it's its own counterpart. So our, our Hanzi, the carriers of Zhongwen, or is it, could there be another... You know, it's interesting. What comes first, the written or the spoken? Is there a relationship? Well, in China, Hanzi were uh, changed. We know that the Jiangu Wen and then the, the uh, uh, various stages of the um, Chinese script has gone through. You can you can still study historical scripts, Li Shu, and. Uh, then there's Xing Shu, you know, and Kai Shu, now there's Fan Ti, Jian Ti. The Chinese writing system has its own life, and the sounds of Chinese have their own life. There are more sounds than there are characters. So one character, for example, Xing, you know, can also be read Heng, and it can also be read Hang. Right? So, Da Hang Pu Shen Wang Pu Sa. It's not Da Xing Pu Shen Wang Pu Sa. And Hang, Yin Hang. One character catches three different sounds. So they're different. Okay, so if in the heavens the gods would speak a language, what the Indians say about Sanskrit, they make, actually it's funny to talk about making offerings. Somebody who is into Sanskrit my uh, Sanskrit teacher at UC Berkeley, he brought the pandits over to teach us people whose entire life is, they're Brahmins, their entire life is to keep alive the language. They make an offering to the language itself before they speak it. And they sing a praise. O Samskritam Devatam. You know, they, they chant to the language before they open the text. They revere it so much. They say that there are no... Uh, what's, um, in the Sanskrit is supposed to be, according to the Indians, as a, a, it's a pure language because there are no exceptions to Sanskrit. So it's called fan wan, jin fan. Shi is that fan. Pure meaning the perfect, perfect carrier for the language. Sanskrit. Samskritam, they say. So how interesting that you that you love the language so much that you make an offering to the carrier of wisdom. 
able to hold wisdom. That's the job of the language. <laughs> How interesting. How different that is from, dude, man, no way. Oh, man, you kidding me? No. And then I'm like, I'm all over that, dude. <laughs> you know, or worse. You know. I think Okay, Kai's idea is that Deva language, if he were designing a Deva language, it would be universal. Doesn't matter what you say, they understand it. Okay? Okay, let's put that into practice. If you, uh, we were just, um, I'm still on sentence two. Come on, let's get real. Why don't you lecture the text? All right. Here's, we went to a translation school this week. Um, five of us went down and we're all here in the room. All of us who went, interesting. The whole, the whole gang, everybody who went is here tonight. Um, and uh, down in Monterey, Monterey is a language institute that has become a school of international studies. And they teach translation and interpretation. And it's very uh, precise. And they've studied it to, you know, to a, a science. They've made it very systematic how you learn language. There are seven, seven languages that they focus on. So, of course, we were interested in the Chinese. And, excuse me, I'm going to sneeze here. Hmm. So, the um, if you think about the different languages that are available, um, think about them as leaves at the end of the tree branch. So you've got leaves, and out there would be flowers and and fruits, and then you come back to the branches, then then the the twigs come back to the branches, the branches come back to the, the main branches that goes back to the trunk, goes back to the roots. The languages that we know now are pretty much the leaves or the, the branch tips. Suppose, as, as Kai mentioned, we got back to a root language. It, the branches all are connected to a root one root produces a million branches. What would the language be if it was a root sound? So here's somebody out here who's saying, you know, Beitzel or Tas or Cup or Glass or Mug, different languages. And the gods can hear each of those leaves and bring it back to a root. You know, so we're looking for maybe a god language is closer to the roots that then go out to all of them. So when you come to the Buddha, for yin er shuo fa zhong sheng sui lei ge de jie, the Buddha speaks the Dharma with a single sound. All living beings hear it, each according to their own 
category. Interesting. So what is that deep basic language? Probably if you enter samadhi, you'll get it. Why do we meditate before a lecture? Why do we before the lecture? Why do we walk around for that same reason? So we can come further down the tree with our minds. So when we hear the Dharma, we're hearing it at a deeper rooted level. So we're actually using a different mind to hear the Dharma than we had when we locked our car door and walked into the building. That's the idea. So that's why Shurfu always had, you know, we always precede a sutra lecture with chanting first, or sitting. Why do the monks, before they lecture, like to sit still? So that we're going deeper towards the roots in order to reflect the Dharma. So when the Buddha speaks the Dharma, he's speaking from samadhi. When we hear the Dharma, if we can hear it in samadhi, we're going to be hearing way deeper. Same sounds, you hear more. Because you're deeper down the tree. Something like that. So, yeah. The Bible has the story of the Tower of Babel. You all know that story? That uh, before that event happened, which was actually a punishment, living beings had one language. And all creatures could communicate and speak. And there was never any confusion or misunderstanding. Imagine if we could speak with, what would the UN be like if, if everyone understood what was being said? It'd get a lot more done, certainly. Okay, so the Buddha's disciple dwelling here acts as a wheel-turning king, universally teaching living beings in his Dharma hall there to practice the ten goods. He would say, do good. Do good. We had King Pan when we lectured last two weeks ago at the Panwang, the, uh, at the Lao Yomian Cultural Center, in my talk. Uh, when you go visit the, the Mian Cultural Center over in Oakland, you walk into the, the uh, temple, and here is King Pan sitting there. And king Pan looks like what? He, he might be a well-turning king. You know, he's, he's got a yellow robe, and he's, he's sitting right there, and he's, he's obviously a male, He's a guy, you know, he's a grandpa. And he's got very straight eyebrows. He's like, he, he looks kind, but he, no nonsense. You don't mess around. You sit still when he's sitting in, this, in front of you. And he's got a flat hat with dangles on it, you know, Confucian hat. He's got a very neat hat. And so Pan Wong is sitting there. And so in my Dharma talk, I brought Pan Wong in. I said, okay, suppose he was sitting here and you were his descendant. What would he say to you? What would Pan Wang, King Pan, say? So I got to, to imitate King Pan. And uh, I think, actually, I think Yeye the lion talked about that two weeks ago. But uh, King Pan would probably say, he'd be staring at you, and you would feel like he sees right through you. His eyes are very clear. And he knows what you're thinking. Right? And he sees right all your tricks and all your good parts. He sees really clearly. And King Pan looks at you and he goes, Be good, he says. That's probably it, you know. And, and you hear him. You really hear him and you start to sweat. You know? <laughs> he says, 
don't mess around. You know, he'd probably say something like, "Be kind," like that. You know, and then he says, "You're all right." Because he lets you off the hook, you know, and he likes you. And he's, you feel gathered in. That's king. probably he would. He would say stuff like that. Rooted, basic dharma. But from where he's saying it, and from where you're hearing it, you really get it. Those simple words mean so much. Because it's coming from him, and you know, you know what he means. So, don't hesitate to close. The, the one on the right, Kevin, you close that one too. Kevin, the next one. There's the next one too. Yeah. So uh, King Pan is probably talking like that. Yes, sir. I think that the, to me that the universal language would be the sound more of, of nature. For mm-hmm. instance, birds singing. Mm. We as humans just hear birds chirping, but who's to say that they're not praising the gods? Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So the the universal language would include the sounds of nature. Um, birds may well be praising. They're also probably, uh, if it's a male bird, he's probably also saying, look how beautiful I am. I'm available. Did you all notice how pretty my tail feathers are? Why do I think that? We have peacocks at City of 10,000. That's their message. Clearly, those peacocks are advertising They're how beautiful they are. Because if there's a female peacock, these young guys, these adolescent peacocks, their tail feathers go up and they strut around. And they're like, you know. And the female peacocks are going, huh? Yeah, they're going, oh. No, you know. Junior, you know. So you can see it. They're very funny. They're all preening for each other. But the girls are always not interested. You know? So anyway, but yes, uh, I just saw a, a YouTube clip on... Do you all go to KarmaTube? Type in KarmaTube instead of YouTube, right? K-A-R-M-A-T-U-B-E. Type KarmaTube into your browser. It's Charity Focus's selection of really, really wholesome videos. Fantastically moving. Almost everyone is tear-worthy, right? Get a Kleenex ready. So KarmaTube, the latest one that was brought out um, yesterday is about the elephant sanctuary. Do you all know about the elephant sanctuary? There's a place in Kentucky or Tennessee where they've got a huge, huge acreage where they provide a home for old elephants. Elephants live long, you know, and many of them are abused. Some have never not been chained for circuses and some in zoos. Zoos are going out of business a lot. Zoos are closed like libraries. Post offices are closing, right? Zoos are closing all over the world. And so sometimes these elephants that have blessings get shipped to the elephant sanctuary. So YouTube has a a video as of yesterday called Elephants Remember. And it's about Sally, or uh, Sally, I think her name. She has been chained for 27 years. 
and she's an old elephant, and her keeper is this uh, African-American gentleman who has been her constant companion for so many years and just loves her. He's saying goodbye to her because he's taken her to the elephant sanctuary. She's going to be safe. And uh, so that's, that's very touching. But then the other five elephants that are out roaming in this, you know, vast, forested, beautiful, safe preserve come in to their home. And the last one, whose name is Jenny, comes in and meets the new elephant who has been unchained for the first time. And the two of them were in a circus together 27 years ago. And they meet each other and remember. And the reunion of these two old friends who are elephants is so touching. And you get to hear. You get to hear the sounds that they make as they become, they renew their friendship. And clearly these two elephants are just like seeing each other again after a separation. And they remember Wow, I really recommend it that you go check Karma Tube and then Elephants Remember is the title. It's only seven minutes long and you get to see these two creatures in elephants' bodies, you know, Samantabhadra Bodhisattva's wheels, his ride is a, an elephant named Iravana, and the two of them are speaking that universal language. It is clearly blessed, you know. Okay. All of the good dharmas which he cultivates in practice are to seek the tenfold powers and then save the world. What does that mean? Bodhisattvas uh, use what are called the ten wisdom powers and they use them to teach. They're like psychic abilities. They're like the deva eye, the deva ear, knowledge of past lives, um, knowledge of living beings' faculties, knowledge of living beings' realms and understandings. They know what you know, clearly, so they know how to explain the Dharma in a way you can understand. Okay? Uh, In England, Catherine, when we were there, uh, set up a lecture at Her Majesty's Royal Treasury, um, which is what it's the taxation and treasury bureaus is where she works. Catherine works in that office. And it's the, the, it's the British treasury. And it's right next door to 10 Downing Street. So if you look out into the courtyard, that's the famous place where the British PM comes out to, um, to meet the press and to receive guests. And all. 10 down, over 10 Downing Street's right next door. So Catherine invited our delegation to go speak about meditation. And uh, she looked at her group of civil servants, high pressure. They graduate with an advanced accounting degree from various institutions, and they get hired to serve the government to do the money. And there's lots of burnout there's lots of stress, and there's lots of dukkha, lots of ku'u in that job because it's, you know, high pressure. So she said, this group needs meditation. 
learns, needs to know how to meditate. So she invited our delegation to go teach meditation. Well, by golly, if I at that point had the ten wisdom powers, I would have known exactly what to say. Because we went into this room full of marble floors, marble pillars, marble walls. Winston Churchill stood on the balcony of that room and told Britain that the Germans had surrendered and they had won World War II. That's that the balcony of the Churchill room was the famous place where Winston Churchill announced victory in Europe. World War II was over. Oh. So this room has history, right? And here we are, and we're saying, yeah, meditation, meditation's a good thing to do. You could all try it. You try to meditate, help you out, you know, get, transform your stress. Well, whatever we said worked because uh, Catherine recently sent me the feedback, and there was just, just all this, hey, that was really good. Can we meditate more? Let's start a group. I, that was what I wanted. I'd never, nobody invited me to meditate. I heard about it, but I, you know. So she's going to go ahead and create a meditation group. Why? That was the, 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 the dharma that she saw was needed in the group. Sure enough, public servants in a high-stress position need to calm, need a way to move out of the senses, back out of the leaves and the branches, back to the root of the tree. So that, you know, you need... Imagine if, if you, using your ten wisdom powers, no matter where you were, you know exactly what to say to get people calm. If you're dealing with five-year-olds, what's the right thing to say to calm down the five-year-old? If you're dealing with angry people, you know, in, uh, uh, at the farmer's market, what do you do if you bump fenders with somebody in traffic? How do you... Deal with that. Well, in Taiwan, you get out and you fist fight right away. <laughs> First thing you do. Every accident includes a fist fight. So. Uh, in India, if you, there are places where if you, uh, you know, the crowds, kind of the definition between the crowd and the street and the road or, and the highway are not very clear, so you can easily run over people. And if you do, chances are you're going to meet serious serious trouble because the crowds will come uh, there's a book called Shantaramna which I read about India where uh, it's not a story for tonight but after a traffic accident the driver who is wrong who has run over grandpa gets torn apart so anyway so if you know exactly what to say because you have the ten wisdom powers you can save the world that's what the Bodhisattva wants to do. Seriously, the Bodhisattva is what you call a... Uh, he is a um, utopian. The Bodhisattva has a view of a world as good as it can be. Where everybody feels connected, everybody feels empowered, blessed, everybody feels optimistic, not depressed, not cynical, not discouraged, not gloom and doom. They always see the spark of hope. They know what to do. These are people who would do what? They would respond to Master Shrenhua's message. Shifu was that way. He was a, a utopian. 
Master Hua would say, you know, we're going to use the Buddha Dharma to save the whole world and every living being, he would say. And then he would say, you know where we start? Filial respect. Xiaoda. Start with your parents. And everybody would go, no way. Why there? Why don't we start with the president? You know, uh, and Shriver would say, well, we'll get to him. You know, he's coming next week and I'm talking to him. You start with your parents. I'll talk to the president. And he did. He talked to George Bush Sr. And the Mayor Moscone and uh, everybody in between. And Hao Bo Chun and, and uh, uh, Lin Yuan Yuan. And, and uh, Shifu talked to, to there, there's a story. I, I, I'm not going to cause trouble for myself. We'll, we'll stop there. Anyway. Shifu talked to lots of presidents and they didn't always listen. During Liu Si, Shu Jian, Shifu was in touch with lessons. So, uh, the, he, he would, his message was always, you know, our goal is what? Our goal is to save the world. Save them from what? Save the world from what? And he would say, well, try suffering. Try your bad temper. Can we save the world from your bad temper? Start there. Can we save the world from your greed? Start there. You know, and he would, and as soon as he would say that, you would start to sweat. And feel very uncomfortable. Shriku knows what's wrong. But then he would, he would say, yeah, start there. And, and that's not a joke. And I'm not slamming you. I'm saying, if you start there, the world, saving the world is not far away. You know, if you can really, really change your jealousy, your habit of being mean to the person closest to you, then the world that the world is bigger by that much. It's a brighter place. Clean, sweep your own garden, you know. Sweep your own sidewalk. The world's cleaner. Then go to your neighbor's sidewalk and sweep theirs, and then they, they might say, what are you doing? Get out of there. I'm calling the police. They might say that. Or they might say, that's so kind of you. Can we sweep their sidewalk? And the two of you sweep the neighbor's sidewalk. That's how you save the world. You know, one set of parents at a time. Those are your parents, so work on them. So he seeks the, four, the tenfold powers to save the world. Now, the next passage is interesting. He willingly forsakes kingship, wealth, and jewels, abandons household life and relies on the Buddha's teaching. With courageous vigor, inside a single thought, he obtains a thousand samadhis and sees a thousand Buddhas. This is the refrain again. This is the uh, um, the conclusion. And he... Uh, when, you, uh, when you read the chapter on Samantabhadra's practices and vows, the, the final chapter of the Avatamsaka, there is a section where the Samantabhadra is talking about um, what happens when you go to the Pure Land. It's a real description of the process at the end of life. <clears throat> 
And it talks about how when somebody is dying, they leave their body and they leave behind, it says, wealth, spouse, children, palaces, armies, vehicles, gold and silver. And you go, wait, 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 wait. I don't have palaces and chariots. And so the Buddha is talking about who a king, obviously, or a prince, or somebody wealthy. And why is that? Was the Buddha only talking to rich people? No. But what I get from that is, first of all, the Buddha is talking about somebody who has faith in the Dharma. Who's going to go off to rebirth? Somebody who's reciting the Buddha's name. Who is going to recite the Buddha's name? Somebody who's heard about the Dharma. Well, do they have to be literate? Do they have to be able to read? Because if so, in India at the time, that was probably 5%. 95% couldn't. They couldn't read. There weren't any books. So how much less? So, no, I don't think so. I don't think the Buddha is only talking about people who can read because some people get it on faith. They hear and immediately put it into practice. The Buddha is talking about people who have blessings. If you have blessings, you will have some stuff. If you have blessings and don't have any stuff, you're probably a, uh, a renunciant. You're a cultivator. You're a spiritual cultivator. Those are the people who, because they want wisdom and truth, they're willing to give up material things. More. They love material things more than they love. They, sorry. They love the truth more than they love stuff. That's how I interpret that passage. The Buddha is not saying the Dharma is for rich people. So in America, that's more and more 2% of the population where the wealth is concentrated and consolidated and everybody else seems to be struggling. That's not, the Buddha is not talking about money and status as the criteria for hearing the Dharma. He's saying the blessings that bring you plenty of material, sufficient material. But look what the Bodhisattva did. He lets go. She lets go of that stuff because she values something else more. Another way to say it is when you're at that last breath, money can't buy me love, right? When you're at that last place, you think about, they say that in, in your last couple breaths, everything that you've done flashes past your memory. You, you relive the scenes of your life, they say, right? This is pretty much universally said that's the case. 
That's one of the things that happens when you die, is everything that you've done goes by you. So for sure, at that point, when you realize you're leaving your body, stuff doesn't matter as much as it did. Because why? You're going somewhere and you're leaving your suitcases behind. The train says, like Ryan Airlines in Europe, sorry, no baggage, (laughs) not even one suitcase, no carry-on items. You may not bring your iPhone 4, and there's no iPhone 5 when you get there. So you can't take anything with you. Boy, suddenly you think, what did I do that's going with me? And the answer is your relationships the things you did, the things we did to each other, that's what goes with us. Okay? So, the Bodhisattva here, before he gets, she gets to that place, the last breath, willingly lets go of even things that people would want to be king, to be queen, to be wealthy, to have not only money, but jewels and stuff. The Bodhisattva is willing to let go of all of that because he or she realizes it doesn't matter. It doesn't have any value. What matters is how we treat each other. That's what matters. So, what does he do at that point? Qi 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 qu jia qu jia yi fu jiao The Bodhisattva even leaves behind those basic relationships, family. Why? Because he sees that those ties, this is my wife, this is my husband, these are my kids, this is my gate, this is my key ring, this is my wallet, this is my credit card. Even those things don't really help us. Those don't define my identity. In reality, those are all part of something I'm going to leave behind. So don't hang on. The Bodhisattva willingly lets go of those and relies instead on the Buddha's teachings. Why? Because the Buddha has been there and come back. The Buddha is called a Guolairan. The Buddha knows the path to that other place and came back to guide us there. Now that's worth listening, right? Nothing else, just remember that. When you are about to leave your body, suddenly your consciousness, your mind is still there, and the question arises, where am I going? Where now? Where am I going? The train is leaving the station, and you want to know where, what train are you on, right? And if you know that the Buddha has been to the final destination, and then got back on the train to come and take us there, then suddenly it's like, what did the Buddha say? Uh, let me see if I can remember the Dharma. What did the Dharma Master say last week? I'm, you know, trying to remember. Oh yeah, he said, pay attention to our relationships. Be kind to people. Treat people the way I would like to be treated by them. Hmm. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Do not do to others what you don't like being done to you. That's the Buddha's teaching. Golden rule. 
So that's when these matters a lot, what the Buddha said. So abandons the household life and relies on the Buddha's teaching. In other words, the Bodhisattva at this point sees through the surface to the roots, does not stop with the surface, is not confused by the flash. Not. With courageous vigor, in a single thought, or within a single thought, he obtains a thousand samadhis and sees a thousand Buddhas. Now, because this is a second stage bodhisattva, he can really meditate. In one thought, in blink like that, the bodhisattva, his mind or her mind, through this profound state of samadhi, and the Buddhas appear. What's that like? You know? It's like, boy, that's... What's it like to enter a thousand samadhis? Anybody done it? Anybody want to share? Um, okay, well, we're going to stop there because it's nine o'clock, but I have a story. One day at the uh, Wuyen Tang, the Wordless Hall, um, Shifu was going to give a class on the Lung Yen it was when he was lecturing on the Lungyan joke, the Shramama mantra. And he would go line by line by line. And um, people hadn't arrived yet. They were sure who was early, the driver. Uh, he'd come from some other appointment. And we were sitting there. And uh, all the, the details of exactly what was going on, I'm not clear. But Shifu said... You all hear me talk about samadhi. Would you like to see me enter samadhi? And of course we're going, <laughs> Sure. And it was just very ordinary, just kind of in conversation, no big deal, you know. It wasn't like selling tickets or come watch the teachers enter samadhi. No, it's just like, want to see me enter samadhi? Yeah, sure. So it was like he did cross his legs. And he just, you could see there was a physical thing. It's like Shifu kind of, he centered. And it was, if I'm leaning, you know, to your left, and I went like that. He just, just a little subtle thing. And you could see that the center was a center here. And he was just like, but then if I, if I told you, what was it like? There was nothing there. Nothing was different at all. Because samadhi is stillness, right? So there's no motion. But what, what I think my eyes saw was it was like what? It was like focusing a camera lens. You know how it goes from wide angle fuzzy or telephoto down to, you know, kind of like that? You know, how in a, sometimes in a movie the 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 foreground and the background exchange. So it's fuzzy and then you realize you're looking. That was the sensation of Shifu just kind of going, focus. And then he went, blink, blink, what do you all think? He said. <laughs> and we're like, did he do anything? <laughs> did you see anything? <laughs> you know? But for about, you know, about maybe 15 seconds or 30 seconds, Shrifu was just in this 
intense stillness that included motion. That's, that's the only thing I can describe, is it was stillness, but it was moving. And the moving that it was doing was this, into this, like a, something that was super, super f- focused. Now we have HD. Remember analog TV on your tube is kind of fuzzy, you know, it's clear. Now there's HD where you can see the pores of the skin of the actors, you know, and oh, look, there's makeup. They got those zits underneath the makeup, you know. Like that. It was that sharp focus. And then the sheriff was like, well, what do you all think? Ah, sheriff, only sheriff. You know, it's like, <laughs> that was in Shivuhainer's mind. And Clearly something had happened, but I couldn't see it. I don't know what he was doing. But I had this impression that it was like a lens focusing. And he was super still, but there was movement going on. That's all I can say. So the bodhisattva, in a single thought, enters a thousand samadhis. What's that like? It's the state of the second ground bodhisattva. Our deep was pretty amazing, huh? And if I told you I know what was going on, no clue. But sure, who's demonstrating what it's like? Okay. How interesting. All right, let us get our transference out, and uh, we're going to transfer the merit of our Sutra lecture tonight. Time's gone so fast. Uh, Next week, we will definitely finish with the second ground and move on to the third ground. And uh, let's see here. We have two two more verses in the second ground. Then we start the third ground. And the third ground is, um, begins with a conversation between the two bodhisattvas. And we find out about psychic powers in the third round. Shanta, among other things. Okay, Phil, we're ready for the, the guitar mic. The dedication of merit is interactive. It requires us to to uh, make a wish. And then just like when I described the offering, what you do when you, when you offer things up, um, inviting the devas to come. Likewise, um, you use that same mind when you transfer the merit, sending out the goodness as far as your mind can concentrate. And you make a wish. May every living being benefit from this goodness that I have created by coming to put my mind into this group tonight, on Saturday night in Berkeley. All the things we could be doing we're here together, listening to the Dharma. Contemplating goodness, contemplating bodhisattvas and our own behavior and teachers. What's that like? So... So, I want to share that with every living being. May they, what? Lose their fear. May they gain great courage. 
May the bodies, may all living beings uh, make offerings to the devas and become wheel-turning sage kings who have the ten powers. Make your own wish. <laughs>